0: With a heart rhythm situation for oh I don't know forty five years probably my dad had the same problem for at least fifty five years and uh what it is it just it'll start beating irregularly and uh, usually within fifteen minutes to an hour it'll regulate <coughs> and I have some methods to use to help it do it, like holding my breath as long as I can, and the CO2 builds up and sometimes that'll help uh, regulate it, or clamping down as hard as you can, sometimes that'll do it, and sometimes it just goes till it quits, I mean not quits, but regulates. <laughs> so uh, that one hit me about 15 minutes before 7 last night, it was over by about 7.22, but <clears throat> what it does, it just leaves me weak because it's not beating regularly. It's kind of fluttering. and it So it takes the energy out of you and you don't feel like doing anything but laying back or laying down. So uh, that's why I didn't make it last night. <clears throat> Since I've been on that protocol from Patty, it seems like they're happening a lot less than they were uh, some time back. And I have to confess, I kind of got sloppy with doing... Uh, The routine the last couple, three weeks, and I did a little traveling, and it was off and on, and I've got to get back on it every night, because it did seem to be getting better, and uh, I have more energy, generally speaking, than I did before I started that protocol. So I think what she's, I think the girl pretty well knows her stuff, as far as uh, what natural things will help us with whatever problems we have with our body, and she seems pretty good on that. And God did give us the, the herbs and so on uh, for health. So uh, if we find somebody that, does, that knows them and knows what to do with them, that's a big thing. So anyway, I'm a believer. Uh, of more importance, though, than that, uh, I just wanted to explain a little what I sometimes deal with. Uh, Pat Nelson has had probably yesterday... Uh, two light heart attacks, uh, had terrible pains in her chest, and she took some nitro to help solve the problem, but uh, then this morning, uh, she apparently had a stroke as well. Uh, she's pretty well out of it, uh, doesn't comprehend a whole lot, and her eyes are dilated, but uh, the reason I think it was a stroke, I'm no doctor, I don't know all these things, but uh, her whole right side, she couldn't move her toes, she couldn't move her hands, fingers. And when she tried to smile a little, it was one-sided. The, the right side wouldn't move at all. It was kind of a, kind of a one-sided kind of a smile. So uh, the hospice nurse came, and they're putting her on hospice. <coughs> but after the nurse left, she did move her... Fingers on her right hand a little bit. So there's a little bit of improvement there from the way she was this morning. So I, you know, I don't know uh, how this will go, but uh, she does not want to go to the hospital, period. She's made up her mind on that and has told several people that she's not going to the hospital again ever. And the nurse says, Well, if, if you go out, shall I resuscitate you? And she sort of hesitated, and the nurse said, but if I do resuscitate you, we'll have to take you to the hospital by law. Uh She says, no, <laughs> don't, res- don't resuscitate me then. I'm not going. So uh that's her position, and that's probably the same position I would take in that condition. Uh, I don't know about you, but if I get to the point where the quality of life is so bad that I can't take care of myself, and somebody else has to take care of me, uh, I'd just as soon go ahead and check out and be done with it uh, than go put people through that and go through it. As long as the quality of life there, yeah, I'm happy to live, don't get me wrong, but uh, when that goes away, what's the point? You know, and sometimes the doctors may give you an extra six months or a year with some of their medications, but it's usually not a very good year. Uh, it's usually full of pain and full of drugs and full of problems and I've seen too much of it in my lifetime in dealing with people and I nah, I don't want to go there. Period. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, my life belongs to God and he can heal me if he sees fit, and if he doesn't see fit, I can die. And we all are appointed to do that. So, uh I think he saved my life quite a few times throughout it, as he may have yours, and he can do it again, and he can raise me up, but that's his business. Anyway, that's that's the way that Pat is looking at this, and she may have somewhat of a recovery, and if God intervenes, of course, she could be completely healed, but short of that, I think she's... On a slippery slope, certainly, and could use some prayers. And, uh, she knows where she is. She knows the situation. She knows she could die. Uh, but she is just leaving that up to God and time and, uh, whatever happens. So, she doesn't want their medications or their operations. She's been, she's seen enough medical stuff in her life that she's pretty well done with it, sounds like. So, She's been anointed, and uh, we've asked God's will be done in the situation, and that's where it is. So I, I, if we would continue to pray for her, that would be a good thing. Let's go then to 1 John 3. I want to finish this book up tonight because I have some other things I'd like to get to these last two Sabbaths that are coming up just ahead of us, uh, other than this. Uh Verse 23 is where we left off last night, chapter 3 of 1 John. After saying that we need to keep His commandments and do things that are pleasing in His sight, He says, This is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And that He that keeps His commandments dwells in Him, and He in Him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. Uh, His word is truth, and he says his spirit will lead us into truth. (coughs) So it is true doctrine and the truth combined with his spirit that lets us know that we know him, along with keeping his words, his commandments, which are an expression of love, toward Him, and toward each other. Now, it may be, seem like I've been talking an awful lot about love, and maybe you think I don't think we have any. Uh, I hope I haven't given that impression. I, uh, it is the most important thing, and it's something that John talked about, and something he's talking about here. But uh, I think I see a lot of love in this congregation. So, I'm not saying we don't have anybody going over and over and over this. It's just something that the Bible does because it's the most important thing. But when there's a need around here or somebody has difficulties or troubles or needs something or wants something, I and mean, people show up left and right uh, to help do anything they can, just like today it, Pat was sitting in the kitchen and uh just basically went out of it. She was semi-comatose. And uh, Nelson was holding her up against the cabinet on the stool, and he managed to get to a phone and call me. So I went over there, and, and I could see that there's no way he and I could get her to the, from the kitchen to the bed. There was no way it could happen. So I got on the phone, and boy, I'll tell you what, <laughs> all the help you needed and more showed up within five minutes. Uh, it's just the way it is here. Everybody's willing to pitch in and do whatever's necessary for the good of the whole, and uh I truly appreciate it. So there is the love of God among us, and I think we are working hard at keeping His commandments and doing what He wants us to do. So uh don't think I don't believe there is some here, because I certainly see it all the time. Uh there's a spirit of sacrifice, a spirit of giving, a spirit of doing whatever is needed to be done, and, and uh, I'll tell you what, that is priceless. It's just priceless. Uh, you get out in the world, and yeah, you'll find people here and there that'll help, but generally, you've got to hire help or whatever. Uh, people aren't willing to just chip in and help because we're brothers and sisters, and they want to help. They want to do what they can. This is our family. This is more our family than our physical blood relatives are our family uh, in the spirit. Now, it's nice if you can have blood relatives and spiritual relatives. um, That's even better. But truly, the Father and the Son and the church members are our family. And that shows. And I do appreciate you, believe me, I do. You're pretty much easy to work with, and that's kind of nice. I've been in this situation with congregations a long time, and uh sometimes with four, five, six hundred people, two congregations, so a total of seven or eight hundred people, and uh it wasn't always rosy. <laughs> there are all kinds of different... Attitudes and approaches and levels of conversion and new people and old people and sick people and uh, this this is nothing compared to uh, some of the things that were there in Worldwide years and years ago that uh, required seven days a week about all the time you had to try to even struggle to keep up with it. So you're easy. Let's get on with chapter 4 then. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. A lot of people with wrong teachings, wrong approaches. Uh, how do you try a spirit? Compare it with what we know God to be, and we compare it with God's work. Um, his Spirit leads into truth, and if you have people who do not agree with this book, then that's not the Spirit of God. It's that simple. It's, a, it's an anti-God or anti-godly doctrine, anti-Word of God, and if it's that, you don't want anything to do with it. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. He talks about this off and on through this section here, about ways to be able to determine whether somebody has a spirit of God or a different spirit. The first thing he says is, Hereby know you the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is coming, should be coming, in the flesh is of God. In other words, he's alive and well, he's at his Father's throne, and when his spirit dwells in us, after the laying on of hands at baptism... He comes to us. It's not just a one-time thing where the Holy Spirit comes and lands on us. Uh, It is that He works with our minds day in and day out, and He is coming to us in spirit. That's why we can pray daily to the Father and the Son and know that they're listening because they're always there. But there are people who don't believe that. And they had a lot of people back then, and you can see what some of the doctrine in that day was, but they weren't accepting Christ at all. And then today, you have a lot of people who don't accept Him at all on this earth, and then you have some who accept Him in name only, but do not the things that He says. And that's how you know that even the ones who take His name are not of Him, because they're not agreeing with what this book says, and therefore they're on a totally different page. So it starts with at least accepting that he was the Christ. And there were an awful lot of people then who would not accept that. And every, uh, let's see, those that don't profess that he's coming to the flesh, in the flesh, in our flesh, is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now, already, is it in the world. And we see the spirit of Antichrist, I think, becoming more and more apparent uh, in our own culture in this nation, because we, we used to be considered a Christian nation, and if you ask most people what their religion was, they would say Christian. That's not the case anymore. I think probably you would have certainly no more than half that would even claim to be Christian, if that. It's quickly going down the tubes. So it is against Christ. And the government that we have in place at this point is very anti-Christ in every way, and they want all so-called Christians dead. That's their goal and their agenda is to kill all people who accept the Father and the Son. So expect that to get a whole lot worse, uh, very quickly, in fact. So that spirit is already here. And the final spirit of Antichrist will be some who comes in the place of Christ, saying that he is God and he isn't. You can read about it in the book of Revelation, of course, that John writes after this book or these three books. And we have to watch for it. We're seeing very, very obvious signs now that the mark of the beast is upon us and that the Antichrist is not far off. Twenty, thirty, forty years ago, you had to really look to find any clues of that. But now it's right there in the press every day and growing stronger day by day, especially in the alternative press. So it's already in the world, and it's becoming very obvious to you and me. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. And he tells us in Isaiah 7, in a prophetic context, not to fear the conspiracy. He says, there is one. Don't fear it. Fear me. So... John is saying, if you're still in the church, you've been overcoming that because it's, it's there and it's been working. And the church was falling apart when John wrote this. Uh, it didn't even really exist in an obvious way after about 100 A.D. It had just disappeared as it has here in this age after about 70 years, same amount of time. You've overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Christ uh, yeah, Christ told them there on that last sermon that he had overcome the world. He had overcome Satan. He had defeated him. So he says, we have someone greater than Satan on our side, and he will be the winner. He's already defeated Satan, and he's just waiting for the right time to come and depose Satan, chain him, and take over the rulership of the world. But he's calling you and I out from under the rule of the world right now, which is what John is talking about here. So Christ is greater than Satan. Verse 5, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. The things they talk about are worldly things. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Now, if you know that you have the truth, you know you believe the truth and you live by the truth, and people disagree with you and don't like what you believe and don't like what you teach, then that proves that they are not of God because they won't hear us. Make sense? They don't like the things of God. Sometimes they like the things of church, but not of God. They'll preach church, and they'll preach the name of God all day long. But they will not do the things that He says. So... Uh, When we preach the truth, they don't hear it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear about the Sabbath, the holy days. They don't want to hear about uh, us becoming God. They don't want to hear all these things that we know and believe. So, if they don't connect, when they hear, let's say, a minister of God speaking the truth, and they don't connect to that, then they are not of God. It's just that simple. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If they don't like the truth, then they have the spirit of error, which is the spirit of Satan. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is begotten of God and knows God. If it's the love of God which is defined by keeping the commandments, then the We know that we are of God. Now, what's the difference between that and human emotion toward each other, toward husband or wife or toward children or toward friends? Uh, People have that, and they express it as love, and yet they don't keep the commandments. So what they have is worldly affection or worldly love for each other, but they don't have the love of God because it is based on commandment-keeping. It's a different kind of love. Now, there can be emotion involved in it, certainly the love of God, because it does produce good emotion when it is the love of God. So let's not confuse them. When you see people out in the world, I mean, I saw people when I was seven, eight years old in the Methodist church they were kind and nice and my grandmother was as sweet a person as I think you'd ever find. She was just help anybody, anywhere, anytime. She never talked down about people. She was always kind and gentle and fair and everything she said. I don't think I ever heard her put anybody down and, well, I left there when I was 14. I don't think I ever heard it in my life. She was just a kind, gentle person full of love and affection. But she believed the commandments of God were done away with. So you see, that was a worldly affection as opposed to a godly love. And that's what we have to come to have. So he says, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is begotten of God and knows God. So you can know, if you know God, if you know and keep his words. You can consider yourself a part of his family, part of his church. You don't have to wonder, well, am I converted? Am I converted? Was I ever converted? People sometimes worry a lot about those things. Well, do you believe in His Word? Do you believe in His truth? Do you try to keep it? Well, if you do, then you know God, and you're part of what He's doing. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. That's just what He is. That defines Him. In this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him, to think as he thought, to walk as he walked, to live as he lived, and his spirit dwelling in us and moving through us. So that when we open our mouths to speak, hopefully it's the attitude, the mind, the spirit of God that comes out of our mouths, not the spirit of antichrist or the spirit of hate or the spirit of malice, or jealousy, or envy, or any of those works of the flesh. But increasingly, hopefully, it is the way that God would talk, the way that Christ would talk. Something we work on day by day. So we live through him. thats I mean, we can be physically alive, but we're not living through him if we're just a human being out here walking around it's when we're baptized and His Spirit is dwelling in us and we're begotten of that Spirit, growing to be born into His kingdom, uh, then He's living through us. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So He loved first, and He sent His Son for the propitiation of all sin, ultimately. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I think that just kind of follows. If you've been loved, you ought to love. It's the way it should follow. Like with a parent, you know. The kid's born, and it doesn't love you. It doesn't know you. So you love it first, and then as it begins to, its mind begins to work and grow, uh, it returns that love to you that you first gave to it. So that's the way God is. He loved us first, and then we learn to love Him. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and His love is perfected in us. So we can't see Him. We have to, in faith, trust, believe that His way is the correct way, and moving forward in faith, uh, we love each other, and God dwells in us, and His love then is being perfected in us as we follow His Spirit and follow His ways. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. A lot of people didn't believe that, and most of 8 billion billion people on earth today don't believe that very small group of people still believe that on the face of this earth. And increasingly less, even blood Israelites believe it. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of the eternal, sovereign, living God. God dwells in him, and he in God. We have a close relationship of family. Father and son, brother and brother. soon to be born fully into his family. And we have known and believed the love that God has has to us. We're responding to it. He opens our eyes to his truth and we respond. And then we recognize that God had to have loved us to open our minds to understand these things, because if he doesn't, nobody can understand them. They just, they can't. And no matter how eloquent, no matter how good a teacher you are, no matter how much you care about somebody, unless God loves him and opens his mind, you can't convince him of any of this. He has an absolute, automatic attitude against it. God has to open that mind. And then it will accept truth. You can't do it. Only God can verse 17, herein is our love made perfect that we may have that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. He said he dwelt in the world and he said that he would leave his disciples in the world, but not of the world. And John is repeating here a lot of what Christ said in that final sermon, that we read after Passover. we got to be in the world, but we need to be bold in the day of judgment. Now, I touched on that some the other night. God doesn't want us to be sniveling cowards. He doesn't want us to be presumptuous and arrogant and think, I've got it made. But at the same time, He wants us to have boldness in approaching Him, knowing That we have His truth, knowing we're working at keeping it, knowing He loves us and we love Him, and there we can, where we can come boldly asking for help in time of need. We don't have to come crawling to God. We can go boldly to Him because He's our Father. Just like hopefully when you were a child, you could come to your Father and talk to Him, and maybe He'd put you on His knee and 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 uh, hug you and talk nicely to you, your father and your mother both. If you missed out on that, uh, you missed something, because it's needed. And we should be able to come boldly to our father and our brother, because they're there to help us. They want us to succeed. They're pulling for us. So they're happy to have us come. Again, in meekness and humility, no arrogance and no presumptuousness. Then he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now that's, in a way, he's explaining what he said, that to come boldly to the throne of grace, as he said, or as Paul said in Hebrews as well, He takes no pleasure in those who shrink back, but those who come boldly seeking from him. He hears that. So, there's no fear in love. Now, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So, godly fear is a wonderful thing when we know God holds our future in his hand. And he can either immortalize us or reject us. And he has fearfully and wonderfully made this earth and everything on it and us and our bodies and our minds. He's done all of this. So we should stand in fear of the sovereign of the universe, but in love and in faith knowing that that sovereign cares about us. So, when he says there's no fear in love, he's saying we don't have the kind of fear that is worry or fretting. That isn't the kind of fear we have. We, have an, we stand in awe of God. You know, haven't you seen people once in a while who had an incredible ability at whatever it might have been, Uh, whether it was art or singing or whatever it might have been, that you just stand in awe. Where did you get that kind of talent? You know, I I hear people sometimes singing. Man, I wish I could sing like that. They are incredible. So you kind of stand back and say, wow. Well, even more so with God, because he can do something that no human can begin to do. So we stand in awe, which has a healthy fear. Now, your children should not be in terror of you, put it that way. They should fear you because you're the one in charge. And if they don't do right, they will suffer chastening of some form or another. So they have a healthy fear that you, as the big person, as the one in charge, they'd better respect you, they'd better obey you, or trouble comes. But at the same time, you hug them, you hold them, you kiss them, you tell them you love them, you do nice things for them, and they love you. They're not in terror of you, but they know... But if they do evil, <laughs> evil is going to come upon them. So there's a there's a balance there of a loving fear and the fear of terror. That we don't want to install in them. <clears throat> but they need to fear us enough to obey us. And we need to fear God enough to obey Him because otherwise things aren't going to go well for us. And if we obey Him... In the proper kind of fear, things will go well for us. This physical family that he gave us is as good a tool as there possibly is to teach us about the relationship between God and us. Because the relationships are the same, parent, child. And we read this and see how that relationship is supposed to work and how we are to act as ...toward our children, as God acts toward us, is his children. He loves us, he blesses us, he also chastens us. And he says he chastens every son whom he loves. And he says, if I don't chasten you, if I don't correct you, you're in the category of a bastard. You're not a son. Because any father who is a true father will chasten his children. He won't let them get away with doing what they want when he wants them to do what he wants them to do. It ruins the kid because it ruins the relationship. And God wants us to fear him. And if we disobey, he chastens us. And he says that proves that he loves us. And he says, if I don't chasten you, then you're a bastard and I don't love you. So if God loves you, expect to be paddled here and there. It's just the way he is. Because he wants the right product in the end. That's what he's working on. And whatever method is needed in order to achieve that, he uses. Now the wrong kind of fear, he goes on to say, has torment. That's the wrong kind of fear. That's what the Baptists sometimes instill in their congregation. If you don't quit drinking and dancing and smoking, you're going to hell. You're going to burn forever and ever and ever more. Uh, that kind of fear of God is torment. That's not the true love of God. That's scare religion. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Or scare the heaven into you, however you want to put it. no. We have to see that God loves us and he chastens us so that we might do what he says and then love him for it. Because didn't he even say of Laodicea, I'm going to spew you out and then when you repent and you come to have zeal and excitement about me again and put me first, then I'm going to turn and bless you. So he always does that. I know I made a practice, always after I paddled my kids or took some privilege away, uh, I'd pick them up and hold them and love them and kiss them and let them know I loved them and made sure that they understood that. But I, met, I, I, would, I would not do that until they had a sweet, compliant, obedient attitude. As long as that kid is still pulling, or that kid is still defiant in some way, in attitude or spirit, you haven't done the job yet. Now, when that spirit becomes one of humility and meekness and compliance and cooperation, then you finish chastening. But if you leave him rebellious, you know, give him three swats and he pulls away, nah. You've only begun to fight. You don't quit until that child is compliant and loving and is ready to hug you. Then is when you take him in your arms and hug him. Or that's when he's little, but as they get bigger, you approach it in different ways. But still in all, uh, they need to understand that the chastening was administered in love so that they might become a better person as opposed to tormenting them. And that's what some parents do with their kids, is they abuse them by punishing too hard too often and not showing the love afterward that needs to be. So God chastens us, and when we straighten out and we come to Him, Father, I repent, I'm sorry, I'm going to do better. Then he loves us. I mean, he shows his love to us. So there's no torment in that. He that fears is not made perfect in love. He still thinks God's a harsh, stern monster that's trying to get him. No, that isn't what God is at all. That's the spirit of Antichrist. That's the spirit of Satan. That God is after you and trying to hurt you. No. No. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You can't even love what you do. See, how are you going to love something that you don't never even seen at all? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loved God... Uh, Loves God, loves his brother also. It's an automatic thing. If you love God, you're going to love man. If you don't love God, you won't love man. And the degree to which. Now in chapter 5, whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God, and everyone that loves him that begat loves him also that is begotten of him. So we all love each other. That's what we're here to do, is love each other as we love God. For by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. That's how you can be guaranteed that you have the love of God is if you love your brothers and sisters. By keeping the commandments toward them. And then he defines what love is. This is a scripture we ought to all have memorized. 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. That's how you define love, right there in one verse. So if you don't keep his commandments, you do not have the love of God. You may have human affection... For others, you may have emotion, but you don't have the kind of love that God wants in his kingdom. You know, people in this world can have a lot of love and caring and emotion for each other. But what does the world look like? The world is full of breaking the commandments of God. You can have a couple that decide to get married and they say, well, we love each other. Well, they don't have God's love. Because they will begin to do this or do that or do something else that's contrary to the law of God. And first thing you know, the marriage is broken up. Somebody might go on drugs or become an alcoholic or start running around. They can do all kinds of things that are contrary, stealing, lying, that are contrary to God. And that human love goes away. But if they're keeping the commandments, they'll be developing the right kind of love, and that remains. It doesn't go away. (coughs) Breaking the commandments, in other words, destroys relationships. Breaking the commandments, I mean, breaking them destroys relationships. Keeping them enhances and improves relationships. And it's not grievous. What's grievous about not killing somebody? What's grievous about not stealing from him or lying to him? Is that grievous? What's grievous about keeping the Sabbath? Well, you keep it a while, you learn to love it. I <laughs> get to rest. For whosoever is begotten of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We trust in God, we believe in Him, we follow His ways, and that causes us to obey His commandments and overcome the world. Christ said, I have overcome the world. And He expects us to do the same thing. Not easy, but He did it, and He wants us to be working on that. Who is He that overcomes the world but He that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you're part of the world you're not going to overcome it. You're just part of it. But if we believe in him and believe in his ways, then we are working at and overcoming the influence of the world. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. Now, the water is true doctrine, living waters. So he brought the truth And then he also brought his blood, which he shed, because we didn't keep the truth, because we sinned against the truth. So all have sinned and come short of the glory, so we all need his blood. But we need the water first to even tell us what is right and what is wrong. The water of life. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. So the Spirit of God bears witness to God of who we are and what we are as his children. And then verse 7, you can just cross out because there was a monk that added that. It was not in the original Greek. He put that in there so that he could try to make people believe in the Trinity, which does not exist. Verse 8, though, the reason he inserted it where he did, he does say that there are three that bear witness. But it's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. That's the three things that he's talking about here, not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, as they say. So the water, of the Spirit of God, gives us the truth. And then the blood atones for any sins that we have committed. So we have those three things going for us the Spirit, the water, the truth, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Those three things combined are what lead us toward the kingdom of God. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Which one do you want? The accolades of men? Or the witness of God for you. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. The fact that he's following Christ is a witness to God that he's one of his. He that believes not God has made him a liar because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son, the whole process of salvation through he who became the Christ. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He is the only way to salvation, the only way to life, is through Christ. He's the door. It's the only way you can get there. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He resurrected Him, gave Him eternal life, and we receive life through Him. And He says we already have it. We're not changed, we're not immortalized yet, but we have His Spirit dwelling in us, and He considers that eternal life because His Spirit is eternal. And the only way we can lose that is to quench that Spirit. To deny it. To get rid of it. And that is possible to do. We don't want to go there. So you already have eternal life dwelling in you through the eternal Spirit of God. That we don't want to lose. These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He emphasizes it. You already have it dwelling in you. And that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. That's what he said earlier. He that believes that Christ is coming in us. He's living his life through us. He's directing our paths, guiding us, leading us, inspiring us. Living his life through us. And we don't want to quench that spirit. We don't want to cut it off. And disobedience causes that to be quenched. But he wants us to believe in a positive way. With trust and confidence and boldness. That we have Christ living his life in us. And this is the confidence that we have in him. Boldness. Here he says confidence. We should come to have confidence in our calling. That if if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So what is His will? His will is expressed in this book. And if we ask things according to these words, then that is according to His will. And those are things that He's inclined to do. Now, if we're being utterly selfish and are asking things that aren't really promised that he will do or is something that is against his will, he's not going to do that. If you pray, God give me a converted, loving wife, that is within his will. But if you say, God, uh well, let me think of somebody more modern, if I can. I don't know the movie stars or actresses anymore. But when I was 12 or 13 or 14, I would have probably asked for a wife, Liz Taylor or Marilyn Monroe or somebody like that, you know. God, give me her. That would have been kind of silly, wouldn't it? That's not according to His will. But... To give you someone who is compliant with his will at the right time and in the right way, that's within his will. And he's quite capable of doing it and often does. He hears us when we're praying according to his will. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that are desired of him. If you read his word, you know what he says. Then you make your petition to him, and he's in accord and in agreement with it, because that petition is in synchronization with his word. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, someone sins out of weakness, uh, perhaps out of ignorance, gets blindsided by the devil, whatever, and they sin. doesn't matter what the sin is. That's not the way they're living. They made a mistake, okay? And they're trying to do what's right, and they feel bad about it. Well, sure, we should pray for them and ask God to forgive. Now, what he's saying about a sin that is unto death is letting ourselves get into the attitude, let's say, of Esau, who sought repentance carefully with tears, cried out, bawled his head off, tears ran down, trying to change his attitude toward Jacob and God, and he couldn't find it anywhere to do that. So, I'm not saying Esau has lost out on eternal life. He may, probably was never really converted. He might be in the great white throne judgment. Because there's no place in the Bible anywhere that condemns any one person to the lake of fire. God just doesn't do that. Not Judas, not Esau. It's not in there. Now, were they in danger? Yeah, I'd say so. But he doesn't pronounce that judgment on them, because they may have opportunity to repent. Judas was never converted, right? He told the apostles, when you are converted, Peter, feed my sheep. Well, none of them were converted at the time they were having that last supper, Judas included. And he partook of the bread and the wine and the meal. And then he went out and sinned. But those apostles were not converted till Pentecost. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. Peter, when you are converted, not not now that you are, when you are. So Judas was never converted. He hung himself before he ever reached Pentecost. So I don't think you can say he lost out on eternal life. He has to have opportunity to be truly converted. Esau the same way. But what he's talking about here is letting that spirit of bitterness get in you. Because once you're bitter, it is the hardest thing there is to overcome. Weakness and sin, you can grow and you can overcome. But once that root of bitterness starts, it tends to just get worse and worse and worse until you're bitter all the way through. And bitter is not a good taste in man or God. Bitterness is, ugh. Sour, I can handle. Bitter, that's worse. That's a sin unto death. He says, if somebody's that bitter, I don't know that it'll do you a bit of good to pray for them. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not unto death. Because why? The Wages of sin is death, and if you sin, you're going to die. But there is forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And therefore, it is not a sin to death, because if it's forgiven, you don't have to die for it. We know that whosoever is begotten of God sins not. Now, he's going to make some mistakes. He's going to sin. We all do. But he will not be living a life of sin. He will not be imbibing of sin on a daily basis and ignoring the laws of God. He'll be trying to keep them and working at keeping them. So he's not living a a life of sin. doesn't mean he doesn't ever sin, because if that was the case, there's been nobody converted but Christ so far. (laughs) But you don't live a life of sin, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself. He works on keeping himself from sin. And that wicked one touches him not because he asks God to protect him from Satan and he prays to be filled with the Spirit of God and that God will not let us be uh, fodder for the evil one. That's in the sample prayer. Satan can't get you if Christ is living his life in you. He can't whip Christ. If you tell... Satan, get you hints, Satan. Um, he's not bound to listen to that because he's stronger than you are. But if you say the eternal rebuke you, Jesus Christ rebuke you, Emmanuel rebuke you, that is a higher authority that he understands. And he has to obey because he's been defeated. That's why those demons that have been tried to cast out beat him up. And he says, John we know, Peter we know, who are you? You don't have the name of Jesus Christ, and therefore we'll whip the dickens out of you. You better have the right name and the right authority. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. The whole world is deceived. It's all wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is coming and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, any form of idolatry, self being the biggest one, but there are all kinds of things out there that people give their attention and focus to instead of to God. So, that's the first commandment. No idols. Amen.